Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Our text this morning is Acts 12. Uh, We'll be looking at verses 20 through 24. Uh, In the previous passage, uh, which we looked at a few weeks ago, we saw King Herod lay violent hands on the church, putting to death James with the sword and arresting Peter with every intention of doing the same to him. In this passage, however, we will see Herod put to death by God. But before we hear the reading and preaching of God's word, let's pray. Asking God for the grace to understand and apply this portion of his word. Would you pray with me? Lord, you taught us to pray, your kingdom come, come now. And speak to us through your word. Grant unity to those who seek it. And tend your lambs in this community. So that the lost may enter into this house of worship and experience the presence of Christ through us. We ask this for his sake and in his name. Amen. Acts 12 verses 20 to 24. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, come up and join me. Welcome, everybody. All right, actually, I I need a volunteer today. Uh, Calvin, come on. I I can do this to you. I won't feel bad at all. (laughs) All right, so uh, here, uh, stand right here. All right, so what what I need, I I need you to try to push me backwards, uh, back up against the wall. Okay, and, and meanwhile, I'm going to try to push you in the other direction, and, and we're just going to see who ends up where, okay? All right, so, all right, you ready? All right, you, yeah, you can push, yeah, oh, okay, all right, all right, all right. Uh, I, I'm going to be in trouble when you get a little bit bigger. All right, you ready? All right, here we go. All right, good job, have a seat. Good job, Calvin. All right, so what, what happened? What? Well, <laughs> all right, you got, so, you got something there. All right, so Calvin was trying to do his thing against me, right? But he couldn't. Why? Okay, stronger, older. Yeah, I've, I've got a few pounds on him. Maybe that, that helps. Yeah, you, you got the idea. When we come up 
against somebody who's bigger and stronger, we can't resist them forever, right? If it's down to strength, the one who has the most is going to win. Now, just for comparison, you guys notice I picked a kid. I didn't pick Jeff Williams. Is he here? Yeah, I'm pretty sure Jeff would just run right over me, and I wouldn't be able to stop him. Well, you're, you're noticing how things work, right? Well, at the, at the start of the chapter, uh, chapter 12 in Acts, King Herod was kind of flexing his strength against God. He was trying to push against God. He was defying God. And he did that by putting, it says, violent hands on some of God's people. And he even killed the Apostle James with the sword. And here at the end of Acts 12, Herod thinks he's winning. He is so powerful that, that people are saying that when he speaks, we hear the voice of a God, not the voice of a man. But did you hear what happened at, immediately after that? Even in the moment of Herod's pride, when he felt the strongest, God showed his power and Herod died right there. Now, sadly, guys, there are so many people who defy God. They, they push against God. They, they fight against him. And this passage shows us that nobody can do that forever. But for you, for you who love God, for you who trust in Jesus, this passage represents an incredible hope. It, it, this passage gives us great comfort if this God is our God. Because although Herod died, did you hear what else happened right after that? What, what's happening to the word of God at this time? Well, verse 24 says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. That means the good news about Jesus wasn't stopped. Instead, it kept spreading, and Jesus' church grew bigger and bigger and bigger. God was using his strength to push forward his purposes and rescue more and more of his people. And because God's strength has caused his word about Jesus to reach all the way, even to us here today, that's another reason why we call this good news. Do you believe it? All right, thanks guys. You can go back to your seat. If you've not done so already, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. We're looking at the final verses of the chapter, the, the record of Herod's death. As Sam uh, reminded us, uh, in uh, the first part of this chapter, we, we see Herod uh, apparently at his full strength as he arrests, uh, as he puts James to death and then arrests Peter with uh, uh, the, uh, every intention of doing the same to him. But in this passage, we, we see that, that Herod's strength was really an illusion. It was a mirage because here in this passage, we see God put Herod to death, not with the sword, 
but with worms. It's a, it's a story that is also told by uh, Josephus. We, we learn of, of Herod's death and his history of uh, the Jewish people, and the, and the details correspond beautifully with what uh, Luke tells us here uh, as it transpires. Herod, dressed in his royal robes, is stricken even as he sits upon the throne, and within a few days is dead. Now, I wonder how you respond to such a story. How do you respond to this account of Herod's death? I, I suspect at least a few of you are delighted to see Herod get his just desserts. There's, there is something in us that delights to see evil men cast down. But at the same time, I suspect that others of you are, are troubled by the idea that, that God put Herod to death in this way. It, it seems harsh and, and vindictive. It, it seems out of accord with, with the character of God that we so cherish and, and love. It, it, there just is something in us that recoils at the idea of this kind of vengeance. And probably most of you are somewhat conflicted. Probably most of you kind of bounce back and forth between those two ideas. At the one moment, delighting to see justice done. At the other, concerned, troubled by the reality that, that God would put Herod to death in this way. And so this morning, I, I want to try to help us to, to make sense of this passage, to, to make sense of this, this passage that both delights and troubles us, this, this passage that, that leaves us conflicted. I want to try to help us make sense of this passage uh, by answering three questions. And the, and the first question is simply this, why was Herod's death deserved? We, we need to see that. We, we need to understand that Herod's death is, in fact, deserved. We, we need to see that Herod was judged and put to death by God justly. And why? What was his sin? What was his, his crime? For what was he condemned? Well, we, we see it there in verse 23. It is explicitly stated, Herod is judged. Herod is condemned. He is put to death because he did not give glory to God. The, the scene is said at the beginning of the passage. We're, we're told that Herod is angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. These are people to uh, the northwest of, of Jerusalem. They, they live there on uh, the, uh, the coast. We're not told exactly why Herod was angry with them, but, but we understand that, that leaders sometimes are, are frustrated with their people, especially kings, when they don't uh, get exactly what they want. And so for one reason or another, Herod Herod is angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They haven't done what he wanted. They're not serving him according to his uh, will. And this is bad news for the people of Tyre and Sidon. They, they naturally want to make peace with the king because it's not good to have the king mad at you. It's not good to, to have the one who is stronger, the one who can, who can make your life miserable. It's not good to have the king mad at you, especially, uh, as we're told, when your land depends for the king's land on food. As I said, Tyre and, and Sidon, they're on the, the coast, and they, they provide important services to the kingdom, but they don't grow their own food. And so if they're going to eat, they need the king uh, to uh, be benevolent. They, they need the king to, to organize the, uh, the, the, the trade of food. 
And so they need to make peace. And they go to Blastus, the, the king's chamberlain, and they, and they decide that they're going to sue for peace. They, they want peace with the king. And it's in this context that Herod comes to them, uh, to their region, to deliver a speech. And, and as he comes out to deliver the speech, he dresses himself in, in his royal robes. And, and Josephus tells us that those robes were, were woven of pure silver. Silver threads woven together so that they reflected the light with, with this overwhelming glory. And as the people hear, uh, as the people see Herod seated upon the throne, as they hear him give his, his speech in order to, to placate him, they shout out, the voice of a God and not a man. And it is when Herod receives this honor, rather than redirecting it to God, rather than acknowledging, no, I am just a man like you, it, it is God whom you should honor, but, but rather he receives the honor. And when he does so, we're told that God puts him to death. We read in verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now it goes without saying that, that God does not always immediately strike down every ruler who fails to give him glory. The, the, the history of the world would look very different if, if God always immediately struck down everyone who, who was a glory thief, everyone who, who stole his, his glory. That, that's not what God does. Just as God does not immediately strike down everyone who lies to him about their giving to the church, as we saw back in chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, God does not always immediately strike down everyone who lies to his spirit. So also God does not immediately strike down every ruler who fails to give him glory. But what we need to see and what we need to understand in this passage is that that is what Herod's sin deserved. That is the, the righteous judgment against Herod's blasphemy. We need to understand that God's judgment here is not overly severe. Rather, it is that God is, is so amazingly gracious with sinners so much of the time that we can forget that His grace is grace. We, we can forget that, that He has lavished His grace on us. We can forget that He has lavished His grace even on His, his enemies. We, we can forget that, that every good gift is an undeserved gift. That, that the air we breathe and the water that brings forth uh, food from the ground, that the sun that, that shines, that, that everything that we experience that is good in this life is a gracious gift of God, an undeserved gift to, to undeserving recipients. But it's because we forget that, because we, we experience God's grace so much of the time, because His grace is so lavish, that we become presumptuous and even critical when we see God doing justice. When we see God executing His judgment against an evil man. And so we need to just simply begin by remembering that when God punishes sinners, He is doing what is right. When God punishes sinners, He is doing right justice. He is acting righteously. Yes, he is a God who is merciful and gracious. Yes, he is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But he is also a God who can by no means clear the guilty. He is a God who cannot leave the guilty unpunished. And when he punishes wicked men, when he uh, executes judgment against sin, he is in the right. He is acting justly. 
But it's still helpful for us to understand, beyond just this, this sort of general recognition that, that God is in the right to judge sin, it's helpful for us to understand why this particular sin deserves God's punishment. Why is it wrong not to give God glory? And to answer this question properly, we, we have to go back to where we, we actually did in our confession of faith this morning. We have to go back to the beginning. We have to go back to, to creation. And we all know, we all confess with our mouth that, that God created us. That God, along with everything else, uh, we were spoken into existence by God. But, but we need to know more than this. We need to know more than that we were created by God. We also need to know that we were created for God. All things, including us, were created by Him and for Him. That means we were created for His purposes. We were, we were created to, to serve him. But what, what does that mean exactly? What does it mean that we were created to, to serve God? We, we know that, that God did not need us for manual labor, as, as we sometimes read in the, the pagan myths. God didn't create us because he had work to do, and he, and he needed some, some slaves to, to do the work. He didn't create us because he needed some food and needed someone to, to farm the land or to, to herd the, the animals. God does not need us in that sense. He, he is the maker who, who speaks into existence whatever he needs. He is, the, he is the maker who owns the cattle on a, on a thousand hills. If he were hungry, he would not tell us, as the psalmist says. And so when we recognize that, that God made us for his glory, we're not, we're not saying that God needs us in, in that sense, but rather we're saying that, that God created us that we might be uh, the manifestation of his glory on earth. He created us in his image uh, that we might, we might reflect his glory and the dominion that we took of this good creation. It's why our shorter catechism says that man's chief end, our, our highest purpose, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We were created by God and we were created for God. And, and, and think about what that means. Because we were created for God, when we use our lives for any other purpose, we forfeit our right to those lives. It only makes sense that the wages of sin is death. Only God has life in himself. All other life is his gift. All other, other life is, is contingent, dependent upon him. And so if we do not use the lives that he has entrusted to us, that he has given us as a stewardship, if we do not use those lives for the purposes for which they were given, then we forfeit our lives to those lives. Just, just think about if you had entrusted your, your savings to a, to a financial manager in order for him to prepare for your retirement, and he used those funds to, to fund his vacation to Hawaii we would immediately recognize that that manager had, had forfeited his right to be in control of those funds, that he had forfeited his right to that money. He'd used it for a purpose other than the owner, other than the source's purposes. That's exactly what it is with us when we rebel against God, when we do not give him glory. We, we, it, it, is, it only makes sense that the wages of sin is death. When we do not use our lives to the purposes that he intended when he created us and gave us life, he has every right to take away that life, which is, in fact, his life. But there is more to this than, than just the, the logic of, of forfeiting our right to the life. Yes, it is wrong not to give God the glory because he made us and he made us for himself. But, but there's more going on here because what we, we need to see is that, not, that God created us to give him glory because God loved us. 
And because God created us to delight in him and giving him glory and delighting in him are inseparable. You, you hear it again in that first question of the catechism. Our chief end, our highest purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Enjoying God and glorifying God are inseparable for, for, for human beings made in his image. And the reality is, is that when we do not give God glory, not only are we forsaking the purpose for which we are made, but we are cutting ourselves off and we are cutting off everyone with whom, we, with, with whom we have relationship from the joy for which we were made. Because not giving God glory is the root of every other evil. Think about it this way. Why, why do people lie and, and steal? Why do people do harm to their neighbors? Whatever form that harm takes, it is always in the pursuit of some end. Some end that is self chosen, some end that is, that is for the advancement of, of their desires and interests. is what James says, why do you go to war with yourselves? Because you are selfish sinners. Because you want and do not have. And so you go to war with one another. And it is this desire to sit upon the throne. It is this desire to usurp God's place. It is the desire to, to be the one glorified rather than the one glorifying that sets us at odd with all our neighbors. You see, God's shalom only works when God is honored as God. We only can know true peace. We can only know true flourishing when we all serve the same Lord. When we all give the same God the glory he deserves. When we steal glory for ourselves, when we act as if we are the Lord, it leads us to war with every other self-inaugurated king. That's the reality of sin. Sin vandalizes God's shalom. When we steal glory, we bring death into the world, even as, as Adam and Eve did at the beginning. And so giving God glory is not only the purpose for which we were created, it is the foundation of the life for which we were created. It is, it is the foundation of the shalom that God intended us to enjoy for all eternity. So whenever human beings try to steal God's glory for themselves, not only, not only is it sin against God, but it destroys man's joy because it vandalizes God's shalom. And it cannot be otherwise. That is why Herod's sin is so serious. Herod's failure to give God's glory is what led him to, to lay violent hands on the church in the first place. He was, was grasping at his own glory, grasping at his own power, grasping at his own uh, reputation. It's, it's what led him to, to subjugate Tyre and, and Sidon with the threat of starvation. If Herod had honored God as God, if he would have bowed the, the knee to King Jesus, then he would have been an entirely different kind of king himself. But as it was, he was a selfish king. He was a, a glory-stealing king. And because he was a glory-stealing king, he was a king fully deserving of God's full wrath. And we need to see that at the very beginning. As we, as we read this story, we, we cannot allow ourselves to be, to be fooled by our presumptions of God's grace. We cannot allow ourselves to think, well, well God's pretty harsh here. He's, he's a little over the top here. Now, this is, this is more than Herod deserved. No, we, we have to see the seriousness of Herod's sin, and we have to see the righteousness of God's judgment against him. 
But, but having seen that, we're, we're positioned to see uh, and make sense of this passage, but, but we're not quite there yet. We need to ask a second question. We need, we need to ask, if Herod was, was fully deserving of death, if, if Herod's sin deserved the judgment that he got, then, then why is there something in us that is so deeply troubled by this scene? If Herod deserved what he got, why is there in us this, this, uh, this unsettledness that comes when we, when we read this story? And I, I think there are at least two reasons for that. There are at least two reasons that we find Herod's death so troubling. First, we, we are troubled by Herod's death because we know we're more like him than we care to admit. We know that, that like him, we ourselves are glory thieves. Herod was condemned for not giving glory to God, but, but how often have we done the same thing? I, I mean, none of us has, has ever literally sat upon the throne in our silver robes and, and received the blasphemous praise of the crowd. At least I don't think. I don't, I don't think that's an experience that any of us have ever actually had. But, but we have all honored ourselves rather than... God. We, we have all sought glory for ourselves rather than Him. We have all sought our own kingdoms rather than, than His kingdoms. And we have done this more times than we, than we care to admit. Not, not only before we were converted, not only before we were born again, but even now, as children of God, we, we continue to grasp at His glory more often than, than we care to admit. Think about it. When, when was the last time that you, that you shaded the truth? Maybe you didn't tell an outright lie, but you, you shaded the truth to get some advantage for yourself or, or to protect yourself from some harm. When was the, the last time that you, that you took something that was not rightfully yours because you thought it was owed to you? When was the last time that you allowed your neighbor to be harmed because protecting him would have been inconvenient? In all these ways, whenever we, whenever we vandalize God's shalom, whenever we sin against God's holy law, we are doing what Herod did. We are stealing glory for ourselves. We are, we are putting, putting ourselves upon the throne. We are making our interests supreme. And so we see ourselves in Herod in ways that are troubling. And if that's where you are this morning, if you read this story and you think, well, I deserve what Herod got. I want you to see the difference between Herod and a disciple of Christ. We, we need to draw that distinction this morning. We, 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 we are troubled because we see ourselves in Herod, but we need to see that there is a difference between Herod and one of Jesus' disciples. The difference is not that, that one is a glory thief and the other is not. We've already said that, that like Herod, we, we steal glory for ourselves. But, but the, the difference is also not that Herod's a bigger glory thief and therefore more deserving and we only do the small things. That's, that's actually not true either. So what is the difference then? What's the difference between Herod and a disciple of Christ? Well, the difference is repentance. We are all Glory thieves. Therefore, we, we all need the grace of forgiveness, but we must understand that God's grace is only for the repentant. It, it cannot be earned. It is freely given as a gift, but it is not given indiscriminately. God's grace is for sinners who confess and repent. Forgiveness is, is for those who, who turn to the Lord in faith, acknowledging their sin and, and endeavoring after new obedience and humble reliance upon His grace. Forgiveness 
The, the grace of God is for those who turn to him in faith. And therefore, God's judgment of Herod is no threat to a repentant sinner. You need to see that this morning. God's judgment of Herod here is no threat to a repentant sinner. Not because you're not like Herod in stealing glory. Not because you're not like Herod in being a sinner. You are. You know it. You know that you're more like him than you, than you care to admit. But God's grace abounds where sin abounds. And if we will repent, his grace will wipe away all our sins. If you are here this morning and you are repentant, then there is no condemnation for you because you are in Christ. And he has drunk to the dregs the cup of God's wrath against your sin. We need to know that if we repent, we are forgiven. That's what the assurance of pardon that we, that we hear every Sunday is all about. It, it is the assurance that God's promise of grace and forgiveness is for any and all who repent. Whosoever believes, whosoever rests upon him, shall not perish. And so, so we need to understand that we should not be troubled by this passage because we think that, it, that it, uh, it is impending doom for us because we're like Herod. If you are repentant, you're not like Herod. Herod was a sinner just like you, but he was unrepentant. If you are repentant, there is no condemnation for you in Christ. And we need to know that, and we need to claim that, and we need to stand in the absolute assurance of that promise. But I think there's a, another reason. There's, a, there's another reason why we might be troubled by this passage. There's another reason why we, why we might read this passage and, and be unsettled. It's, it's not only because we see ourselves in Herod, but because we see God in a way that, that makes us uneasy. It, it seems that, that, that this is out of accord with God's character. Why is God here putting sinners to death. Because after all, isn't, isn't God the God who commanded us to love our enemies in imitation of, of him? How do we reconcile the, the condemnation of a sinner like Herod, an unrepentant sinner? How, how do we reconcile the condemnation of Herod with the command to love our enemies? Now, to answer this question, we have to remember that that the command to love our enemies was never meant to be heard as forbidding vengeance. It was never a condemnation of, of vengeance per se. It was never a condemnation of, of vengeance in itself. We, we see this clearly, for example, in, in Romans chapter 12. Hear what Paul writes there. Paul writes, bless, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil. Never avenge yourselves. Those are, those are the passages that, uh, that, that we are, are familiar with, right? Don't, do not return evil for evil. And I, and I remember when my kids were little, that and the, the passage in James about selfishness leading to war, those were probably the two most often quoted verses in my household, right? Do not return evil for evil, and do you know what causes war? It's your selfishness. You know, I, I said that a lot to my kids, <laughs> right? We, we know this passage. We, we know that we're not to return evil for evil, but do you know that Paul doesn't stop there? Paul goes on to say, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
So, so vengeance or, or repaying evil is not actually wrong in itself. It, it is not, it's just not, it's, it's not our prerogative. It's not ours to do. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. It is His to repay. But vengeance is actually right. Vengeance is the execution of justice against evil and against evil men. In fact, I would suggest to you that it is the promise of divine retribution that frees us to truly love our enemies. If forgiveness is simply letting people get away with evil, then it's not good news. Just this week, I heard a book by an author, a scholar, being discussed, a secular scholar, a non-Christian scholar. In this book, the author vehemently argues against forgiveness, against the practice of forgiveness in our society, because she was arguing that forgiveness is just letting people get away with it. And if we do that, society will unravel. Society will, will fall apart. And there's something right about that. Now, the other side of the coin is that if we don't forgive, you know, an eye for an eye makes everyone blind, right? Uh, you, we, we recognize the other side of it as well. Without forgiveness, society falls apart. But with forgiveness, society falls apart if forgiveness is simply letting people get away with evil. And so we're in this conundrum. We're, we're in this catch-22. There, there, there's no way forward until we see the justice and mercy of God woven together in the person of Christ. You see, it is God's absolute commitment to dealing with evil as evil that sets us free to love our enemies. We, we don't have to do justice to our enemies because we know that they are ultimately in God's hands. And it frees us to love our enemies without undermining true shalom. And so what we begin to see in the person of Jesus Christ, what we begin to see in the gospel of, of, of God's wrath poured out upon him upon the cross, what we, what we begin to see is that there is no incompatibility between loving our enemies and longing for justice. Both are aspects of God's character, and both must be reflected in our own dealings with evil people. God is patient and kind with his enemies. He, he gives sun and rain to, every, uh, to everyone, good and evil alike, as Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount. And not only is he patient and kind, but, but, but when they refuse to repent, he, he does not rejoice in their destruction, but grieves. Think of Jesus weeping as he rides into Jerusalem. But even though he weeps, God will one day judge. God will one day crush his enemies. Think of the image of, of Psalm 2. God will crush his enemies as clay pots beneath an iron scepter. All three aspects are true. All three are, are aspects of God's character. All three are, are aspects of God's dealing with evil people. And they must all be reflected in our own interactions with God's enemies. We, like God, must be patient and kind with our enemies. We must bless those who, who persecute us. But at the exact same time, we may long for God's enemies our enemies, those doing evil to us because we are his, because we are following him. We may long for our enemies as God's people to be defeated and destroyed. Not only for their purposes to be frustrated. Yes, we, we long for that. We long for their purposes to be frustrated. But even more than that, we long for them to be entirely undone. 
We long for them to be destroyed. We long for them to be no more. We do not delight in their destruction. We, we grieve it even as Jesus grieved over the impending destruction of, of Jerusalem. But we long for them to be no more. And ultimately, we long for them to be undone in the person of Christ. You see, we all have to die. We all have to die for our sins. The question is, will we die alone and drink God's cup of wrath ourselves, or will we die in Christ? Will we lose our lives in Him? Will we be crucified with, with Him so that we might live again with Him because He drank the cup for us? But ultimately, you want your enemies, you want the enemies of God's people to be destroyed. There, there's something right about that. There's something right about, about, about seeing Herod's demise and, and saying, that is good. Yes, we grieve the, the destruction of, of sinners, but we grieve even as we rejoice. We rejoice even as we, we grieve. We, and we struggle to keep that tension in balance. We, we struggle to, to keep both sides right. But the gospel will not allow us to, to cast aside either. We long for sinners to be saved. And we long for sinners to be no more. We long for the wicked to be undone. And we long for God's kingdom to come. We long for the sinners to repent and to receive new life in Jesus Christ. This is the reality. This is, this is the reality of what we see in a text like this. It's why we see, feel so conflicted when we see it. Because, because Herod deserves his judgment. And God is executing on him the judgment that all sinners will receive at the, at the end of time. And it's shocking to us. And at the same time, it is hopeful. <laughs> Because we know what it means. It means that wicked men cannot prosper forever. Wicked men cannot defy God forever. And really that's our, our last point. I don't have time to, to fully explore it this morning. But, but having seen why we should not be troubled by Herod's death, uh, by, or at least not exclusively troubled by Herod's death, we, we need to also see why it is actually good. We need to understand what Herod's death means. And Herod's death means that God's enemies cannot forever defy him. We do not have to fear that God's enemies will have their way. We do not have to, to fear that, that God's enemies will ultimately establish their purposes. It may seem that way for a season, even a long season, but in the end, God's righteousness will prevail. In the end, God's kingdom will come. In the end, all of God's enemies will be no more. For he is the king. And as the, the Father says in Psalm 2, he will sit upon the throne. And that is good news. That is good news. That's the good news of which Isaiah speaks. Do you remember the words? He, he says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. And what is that good news? It's the good news that God reigns. Because it's only when he sits upon the throne alone that his shalom will abound from shore to shore. It's only when he alone is king that his peace will fill the earth as the waters fill the sea. He, as king, is the good news. And that's why as we come to a passage like this, yes, we, we, we are troubled by Herod's death, but at the same time we are comforted. Because we do not long for any sinner to die in their sins, but we long for all sinners to die and be no more. We long for God's kingdom to come. We long for righteousness to be established because we know 
that God's kingdom is our only hope. If God did not punish evil, if he, if he left wicked men unpunished, we would have no hope. But because he is a God who is both merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and who will by no means clear the guilty, because he is both, that is why we call this gospel. That is why this is good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we thank you for your grace. We, we thank you for the, the wonder of this passage. We, we acknowledge, Father, that our minds are, are bewildered and, and we are sometimes troubled as we read stories like this, Father. But I pray that you would use this story to open our eyes, uh, help us to see even more clearly the wonders of your gospel, Father. A gospel that neither leaves sin unpunished, nor wipes sinners out without hope, but who offers them the hope of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. May all turn to him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.